The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And we're going to return to a subject that I began a couple of weeks ago, uh, just before our Mother's Day celebration, a, a very difficult one, and one that's not really taught very much at all in churches today, and that is the matter of church discipline. And I remind you as we start this this morning that the favorite term that is used in Scripture for the people of God is the term children. God refers to us as his children. And in the beginning of this chapter, Jesus pulled a little child aside and he set them in the midst of the disciples and he began to teach them how that they must become as little children. That in order for them to be a part of his kingdom, that they had to be like little children. And so he taught them that they must have the humility of children, they must have the dependence of children, they must trust as children. And they needed to learn that everything they were and everything they would be and everything that they would ever have would come at the hand of their heavenly father who treated them like children. Now, this passage, the entire chapter is really about the character, the kingdom character of God's children and how that God does treat them as children. A few weeks ago, it's a couple of weeks ago when we looked at this earlier I told you that I never realized how much that God cares for his children until the time that my wife and I had our first child. And when I was able to take that little baby and just hold that baby in my hands, I began to understand better. Even though I'd been a Christian for many, many years, I began to understand a little bit better and become more aware of how God treats us as children. And I began to understand how that God wanted to bless me as his child, that his greatest blessings were reserved for me when I was his faithful, obedient child and I was always walking in his footsteps. But I don't always follow the Lord as I should. And if you're a Christian, I suspect that you don't always follow the Lord in the way that you should. And when I'm not following the Lord in those ways, I know those things are harmful for me. The Bible says that there is a way that seems right to a man But the end of those ways are the end of death. And so God can't bless me at times when I'm not obedient to him. And so what the Heavenly Father does in those times is he reaches out and he corrects me and he brings me back into the right way. Now, you and I I as parents, we understand that. Our children don't always obey us. Now, we love for them to. And we like them to do the right things, but they don't always do what's best for them. And so we have to discipline our children. And I I do hope that that's something that you practice. If you still have children in the home, that you do practice discipline because none of us wants to be around a child that hasn't been disciplined. Well, the passage here is, is a continuation of this demonstration that God gives in the first part of the chapter in the way and how he treats us as his children. And he shows us here that children must be disciplined properly. God's children must be disciplined properly in order to receive all the best that God has for us. Now, here's the thing about the teaching that we find here. 
that there are times when God the Father disciplines his children directly from heaven. I mean, there are some times when God just immediately chastises one of his children that's gone astray. And sometimes that chastisement is very severe. This is what happened in the church at Corinth. There were some things going on there that was so displeasing to God, that were so wicked, that God just like that reached down and took the lives of some of the people that were in Corinth. But God doesn't always work that way. And we have to thank the Lord that he doesn't. Most often he doesn't work that way. Instead of uh, of working above the church and transcending the church, he works through the church. And God has called us to be the agents of his discipline. Now, that's a part of our church life. And without doubt, that is one of the most difficult parts that we have to do. And yet God has commanded it. And rarely, though, do we find churches today that practice this biblical principle, this Holy Spirit-led function of calling the church to holiness through church discipline. But that is what God has commanded. And here in these scriptures, he gives us a road map to follow that shows us how that discipline is begun, how it progresses, what it yields, and either positive or negative effects for the one who has offended. Now, if you look in the scriptures in Matthew chapter 18, we have the outline that Jesus gave for discipline in his church. Stand with me once again as we read God's word. This will be the last time you have to stand till I get through, so you get a big rest here in just a few minutes. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus is teaching the disciples, and he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast heard thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them... Tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as teaching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven." For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. Open up this passage to us. Help us to understand better what you'd have for your church today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, here's one thing that I need you to get in your mind just as a complete overview of this passage. This has to be the thing that sticks in your mind as we study this. And that is the word holiness. You need to understand that what we're talking about here is the holiness of God's church. That God has a special called out people. He has an assembly of believers that he calls the bride of Christ. And this bride of Christ is to be a holy bride. Now, this is where then the discussion has to start. We have to start with the church, that the church is the right place for discipline. God expects that his people would be holy. He demands purity in his church. And he shows us that there are measures that have to be taken in order to maintain this purity. 
And so in Scripture, we find that God's preachers are told to be preachers of holiness. We're to let this issue stand forth whenever we preach, that God's people are called out and they are to be holy, and God's preachers are to preach that holiness that people ought to have. And the Apostle Paul, who was a mentor to the young preacher Timothy, told him, Preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Paul told Timothy that he was to preach the word, but he was also to look out for the welfare of God's people. And so he was to reprove them. That means to reprimand them when they were wrong. He was told to rebuke them, and that means to censure their disobedience. And whenever he saw them walking contrary to the commandments of God, then Timothy was to step out and forcefully preach against that sin. Now, you and I know today that you're not going to go in very many churches where anybody's preaching about sin. There's no real call to holiness in God's churches because preachers are afraid to bring the issue of sin before the people, things that are going on in their everyday lives that God isn't pleased with. But that's what God wants us to do. And I'm sure that you can understand that when a preacher preaches on an issue such as holiness, that there has to be some teeth in the reprimands. There has to be something that can be done that calls people to repentance and faith. Now, you know how this is true, that your your children, when you tell them to do something and they don't do it, you tell them, and if you don't do anything about it, then they'll go back and they do the same thing again. And they know that if you don't have any teeth in the reprimand, if you don't have any way to punish them and and carefully guard the word punishment, because I don't mean to say that punishment is a part of God's chastisement, but that's the way that we look at it, that, that we have to do something to put some force behind what we say to our children. And if we don't, they don't listen to us. And they just go on and do again and do it over and over again. Now, likewise, then, a preacher of holiness and a church that wants purity in the body of Christ must have some teeth in those calls to holiness. And so if people don't respond, there has to be something done that awakens them to their sins, that really shocks them out of that sin and turns them back to doing what's right. Now, the last stage of discipline is that place, and that's a place where we hope not to go. And so we're given steps in these scriptures to help us to prayerfully avoid the shocking results of the last stage of church discipline. Now, in verse 17, we find that the ultimate plan of God on this earth for the judgment of sin is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God does not ordinarily, as I said a moment ago, he doesn't ordinarily send judgment from heaven. But what he does is he works through his church. Now, the offender that we find mentioned in the passage here is one who is a part of the church. This is someone who has professed faith in Christ. And so we assume that this is a saved person. That, that's the attitude that we start out with first. This person must be a saved person. He's made a profession in Christ. Then the other sinner, or the other person rather, the one who is offended that person is also a member of the Lord's church. So we see here that the church is actually central in the passage and that all efforts 
For a restoration to holiness must be made in order for the good of the body of Christ, which is the Lord's church. Now, you'll notice in Matthew 18, 17, that the church is mentioned twice in this scripture. In only one other place in the book of Matthew do we find the mention of the word church. That's in Matthew 16, 18. And besides that instance, Matthew 16, 18, and these two in Matthew 18, 17, these are the only times that the church is mentioned in the entire gospel of Matthew or in any of the four gospel accounts. Now, that tells us something. It tells us that the church here is in its infancy. That we're not looking at a fully developed church like we have today. All the different organizational parts have not been put together. All of that's not in place. In other parts of the New Testament, we'll get that information. We find more teaching. We find instructions for pastors and for deacons. We find more about the development of church doctrine. We find more about church procedures. That happens in the rest of the New Testament. Now, through the centuries, of course, there have been many things that have been added to what we do in church. Some of those things are biblical. Most of them are not. But there are a lot of things that have been added. But here we're looking at an undeveloped church. These are just people that God is just, the Lord is just starting out with, that he's gathered them together, and they'll receive instructions later. But this is that undeveloped church. Now, here we find people that have been covenanted together already. They've come under the headship of Christ. And I disagree with some who say that the church has not yet started in this passage. Uh, Many like Schofield, if you have a Schofield study Bible, says that this is instruction for the future church. But I think the church has already begun, and Jesus is speaking to those disciples who already make up that church, but the church is still in a primitive state. Now, he began the church with his 12 apostles. They were the first church. And then there were others that followed along during Christ's ministry. And so we come down to the end of his ministry, and we find in Acts chapter 1, that at that point there were 120 disciples that had come together and they were the Lord's church. Now, the word church, that's the word ekklesia. Uh, The Greek word for church is ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. It means one specifically called out for fellowship, for teaching, and for evangelism. It's a community of believers that have banded together to carry out this great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. These are believers that are in a specific location, a particular locality. And these are believers that are capable of taking action as a corporate body. So we're not talking here about some huge, universal, invisible, non-assembling assembly, because the Greek word ekklesia means assembly. And what does an assembly do? Well, it assembles together. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, and that's the way these disciples would have taken it in the ordinary meaning of that word. But again, we're talking about the church in a primitive form. The church is not fully developed. And this is most interesting to me because we look at Matthew 16, 18, and there we find the first mention of the word church, and that mention is about the head and the founder of the church. And we would expect that. That's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But it's pointed here that the very next teaching that we have concerning the church is something that we totally would not expect. And that's the matter of church discipline. 
Only the second time that it's mentioned in the New Testament is here in the 17th verse, and it talks about the discipline of God's people. Now, that gives us a very good indication of the priorities of God's church. This is a church that belongs to Jesus Christ, and what he wants is a holy church that does not tolerate sin. Now, does that make sense to you? The church must not tolerate sin because the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. And what is Jesus Christ? He is incorruptible. He never sinned. He's the Holy One of God. And that's what God expects from his people, to do everything that we can to get sin out of the church. So here's the church in its infancy. Discipline is not something that starts out with a hierarchical structure. There are no committees. There are no councils. We don't find boards and we don't find synods here that are responsible for discipline. This is just the church. That means you and me. Jesus is talking about those disciples then who made up the church. They were right there with him. And today he's talking about you and me, that we are the ones that are responsible to start this disciplinary process in which we call our brothers and sisters in Christ back to the holiness that God demands. We're the ones responsible for this. Some time ago I was called and I was asked, if I would help to discipline someone who was in another church. Well, I don't have any authority in that church. I can go to them and I can advise them. I can tell them what the Bible says. But I don't have an authority, any authority in that church. The only place where I have authority is right here among the members of Berean Baptist Church. And when we become members of the Lord's Church, we automatically sign on to come under the authority of the church. We agree together that we'll live under the authority of Scripture and that we will submit ourselves to be accountable to the assembly of God's people. And that's our responsibility. It is our responsibility to hold one another accountable. And that means that you need... And I need to do this. We first look at our own lives, and then we watch the lives of our brothers and our sisters. And if we see them fall into sin, then we start this process of bringing them back to the Lord. We want them to be holy. We want God's blessings to be on them and to be on us all. And so discipline starts out very simply. There is no big organizational structure. There is no hierarchy outside or the church or inside of the church that controls the process. There is no synod. There is no presbytery. We don't have a high council of Baptist churches. The authority for discipline is right here in this assembly. There is no court of appeal that's higher than what we have right here in this church. Now, the Apostle Paul spoke about the authority of the assembly, these people that have gathered together in the name of the Lord. And he said in 1 Corinthians 6, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. 
There is no ecclesiastical court outside of the church. There is no secular authority outside of the church. When God's people are living in righteousness and in holiness, then we're qualified to judge matters in the local assembly. And you need to understand that because the foundation of church discipline is built on what we do right here as the body of Christ. And so when you become a member of the Lord's church... And think about this, if you're thinking about becoming a member of Brian Baptist, or if you already are, that you understand this, that you are not free to act in any way that you please. Now, Brother Dalton, in his lesson this morning, brought this out somewhat, although he wasn't touching on the same subject, but he said that you are instruments that are used by God, and you have been bought by God, and you don't choose what you do. You choose what Christ wants you to do. That's what he expects. And so when you become a member of the Lord's church, you agree that you come under this authority and that you'll be held accountable for your actions to the entire body of believers. And folks, trust me, I have met so many people that will say, I do not want that. I don't want the scrutiny. I don't want people watching and judging my life. And the only reason that a person would respond in that way is because they have sin in their life that they do not intend to give up. There's something going on that's not right, and so they don't want the scrutiny. They don't invite it. And I would have to tell you that someone who feels like that, who doesn't want to be as close to the Lord as he can be to get the sin out of his life, that he doesn't deserve to be a member. He doesn't deserve the privilege of being a member of the Lord's church. And so we establish this, the Lord's church, that's the right place for discipline. We are the people of God. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. We have been commanded to be baptized and to enter into the fellowship of the church. And when we do, we become responsible to serve the Lord faithfully in the church and to live lives of holiness. Now, we've got several weeks to go on this. But before we go on and look at the how-to of discipline, I want to spend the rest of my time today talking to you about the what-for of discipline. What's it for? Well, we find here in the Scripture that restoration, that's the purpose of discipline. Restoration, this is why we discipline people. Now, that purpose is explained at the end of verse 15. Jesus said, If he shall hear thee, that's the one who has offended. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now, that's restoration. I think that there are two types of restoration that form the purpose of discipline that we find that God wants us to practice as his church. Now, that first form of discipline is that we might restore the offender, the one who has offended, that we might restore that person to fellowship. Notice verse 15 says, if thy brother shall transgress against thee. I haven't met a whole lot of people that could have sweet fellowship with somebody who's been hurtful to them. I don't, I've never met too many people that can have a good relationship with someone who's done something against them. And you have two people that have issues that are causing them to be at one another. And so I believe that the type of sin that we're talking about here is a sin that takes place between us. This is a sin that injures the fellowship of people in the church. 
And so this faithful, unerring person, the one who has been rightly offended by someone who goes into sin, that person feels that he can't continue to fellowship with this other person because to do so is to condone the sin that he's in. It's to say, well, that really doesn't matter. You've committed a sin against God and against the body of Christ, but it really doesn't matter, and so I'm not going to say anything about it. And that's one of the great problems that we have in preaching against sin and not having any way to enforce a penalty, that it appears that we condone sin. That if we let it go on and we don't say anything about it, then it appears that sin is not really all that bad after all. Now, I reminded you in that first sermon last week or a couple of weeks ago that sin put Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you not think that God's very much concerned about sin? Well, of course he is. He's very concerned about sin. And yet when we don't do anything about it, when we let it pass and we say, well, that's okay, we'd rather not offend the offender because of his sin, well, then we're actually speaking out against Christ and we are condoning the sin that that person is in. We say it's not all that important. But what has happened when someone sins against the body of Christ or sins against you as a member of the church? What has happened? Well, that person has broken fellowship. And we are to be a community of believers that are in fellowship, not out of fellowship. We defeat the whole purpose of having a church if we can't have people come together in sweet fellowship. We're not a community of believers if we do that. So we can't have fellowship in the church when there is one person at the throat of another person and they come into the assembly and people start dividing right down the aisle so the people on this side can't get along with the people that are on that side. We can't be a church like that. We can't be a church where there are personal grudges that are going on within the body of Christ that destroy the fellowship of God's people. I knew a church back in Kentucky that was very, very much like this. It was a church that was very aptly named. It sat right next to a Civil War battlefield. And the name of the church was Battle Baptist Church. And every Sunday, this is the truth, so help me, every Sunday there was a battle going on in that church. That church had so many pastors, I don't even think you could count the number, because they would come and they would stay for a little while, and they would get completely worn out by trying to strike truces among all the battling church members. That's the kind of church that it was, always fighting with one another. And folks, we can't be a church like that. The goal of discipline is restoration. And it's not so much that we can feel good about each other and feel good in each other's presence and be chums again. That's important, and we need that. The real goal is the restoration, because we understand that what sin does in God's church is to tear up holiness. And it tears down holiness. Sin separates us from God, and sin separates us from each other. And sin brings chastisement. Now, although chastisement is good for us, The Word of God does say that. It shows that God loves us. It shows that God treats us as His children. And yet the Bible also says that chastisement is a very, very grievous process. You don't want to go through that. You do not want to invite the Lord's chastisement. And so we are commanded to restore offending Christians. 
And we have a scripture in Galatians that you really need to mark in your mind. Keep this in your mind because we'll go through this several other times through this study. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill. We fulfill the law of Christ. Now, do you know what law that Paul is talking about there? What law of Christ do we fulfill by restoring people to fellowship? Well, first of all, you remember that Jesus divided the law into two sections. It's the way that we love God and the way that we love our fellow man. When we restore someone to fellowship, we start with bringing them back to the place where they love God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. That they're concentrating on the fellowship that they have with God and confessing their sin. And then secondly, we show love for our neighbor. We show the second part of that law, that we love that person by restoring them to fellowship and bringing them back into the place of God's blessing. And so confronting people with sin and restoring them to the fellowship, that's not an act of overreaching nosy Christians. That's not how you look at the fellow members of your church, not overreaching nosy people, but people that are interested in showing you an act of love because they don't want you to continue in sin where you can't be blessed by God. And so if you don't attempt to do this, if you don't attempt to restore an offending brother to fellowship or a sister, and you let that person go on the way that they are, then you don't love them as you should. And what happens then? You have two people that are in disobedience to God. You, because you didn't care enough about them to try to straighten them out and bring them back and restore them. And then, of course, the person who's living in his sin. Well, I know that there are churches that say this. They don't practice discipline. And so they say, well, we don't discipline people because we love each other so much. We don't discipline because discipline is hard and we don't want to say anything. We want to have compassion and we want to tolerate people in their sin. And you know what I would ask? Show me one scripture in the Bible that says anything like that. Where does it say to let people continue in sin as an act of love? Now, I can show you this in Isaiah chapter 5, where it says, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. Now, that's a little bit hard to understand, but just a very simple explanation is somebody who just goes on in sin and acts like it's okay, there's nothing wrong with it, and they just do as much as they want to do. They say, Let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. Or as if God's not going to do anything about it, God will be pleased. But he says, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Just before that, Isaiah wrote, God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. And what he's telling us is that God will not allow anyone to say that we are doing good by permitting evil. And this is what it is. You call evil good when you disobey the commandment of God for discipline. And you call good evil when you say that disciplining a person is an unloving act towards them. That's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. 
And yet there are some churches who are determined that it's best not to discipline. And they do so contrary to the words of Scripture. Now understand that the reason that we discipline people is not so that we can show them the back door of the church. We're not interested in kicking people out. We don't really want people to leave the church. We don't want to kick them out the back door. It doesn't do any good to do that, to show them the front door, then usher them out the back door. That's not what God wants us to do. But when a person sins against God and he breaks fellowship with the church, that person is lost to us until we restore them. The Bible says that you have lost your brother. And that's the way that you need to look at it. You need to restore him because you've lost your brother. Now think about it. What is the most precious possession that God has? His most precious possession is his children. It's not the cattle that's on a thousand hills. He owns all of that, but that's not most precious to him. It's not all the gold and ophir that they took to build Solomon's temple. Not all of those riches. That's not the most precious of all of God's treasures. The most precious are God's people, those that are born again, those that Christ gave his life to save. Those are the most precious of all. And we need to look at them that way. Your brother and sister in Christ that you're sitting next to today, that person, if he is a believer, if that person believes Jesus Christ, Christ died to save him, and he did save him, and that person's going to be in heaven with you. That's God's most precious possession. And so we can't look at that person and say, well, they're not worthy of our love. They're not worthy of our concern. Let's just let them go the way that they want to go, and let's not say anything about it when they get into sin. No, God wants us to bring them back into the fellowship to restore our brother. And God expects nothing less from that, from us. He expects us to be the shepherd that seeks the one lost sheep. And that's why we have the analogy back in verses 12 and 13 of Christ who seeks the one lost sheep. And you remember how we went back through that? And I showed you that that particular scripture is not talking about salvation of the lost, but rather it's talking about an offender, someone who's walked away from the people of God. That's the context in which we find that in, in this scripture. And so he's talking here about discipline, and he's talking about restoring people, about going after those people. And what we have to do is put all of our effort, everything that we are, as one person said to me, leave no stone unturned to bring that person back into the fellowship of the church. Do we really care about others? Can you really fulfill the law of Christ if you don't care about your brother that's fallen into sin? Do you care that he will ruin his life and perhaps the life of his family? You know, I can think about people that have been members of our church. I can have a family in my mind right now that at one time they were members of our church and, and the, the husband and the wife, they got into sin, and they got away from the Lord, and they chose to drift away. And that mom and dad didn't walk in the ways of the Lord, and so their children began to get involved in their sin. And their children began to walk the way that they walked. And you know what happened? An entire generation was lost because of the sins of those parents. You couldn't get those children to darken a church door at all now. You couldn't do anything, it seems like, to get them to come into the church. And what happened? It was because the parents started to walk away, and the parents didn't heed the commands of Christ to follow him. They got into sin, 
And the question for us is, do we care enough about people like that to go after them? Have we done everything that we can to restore them to the fellowship of the church? So how could you ever say we love people so much that we can't call them out and discipline them? That is totally against the word of God. So we act then as if church discipline is an unfair imposition on people. And we don't really have the right to watch and see what anybody's doing. And, I, and I'm not talking here about nitpicking people to death. And, and, and we'll learn a little bit later that before you can ever go to talk to somebody about their sin, you have to make sure that there's none in your life. Because you don't want anything worse than to talk to somebody about their sin and they've got a whole list of yours that they're going to bring up to you. So you have to make sure that your life is right. We're talking about someone consecrated, dedicated to God that's trying to live for the Lord, and they're earnestly concerned, and they have a burden in their heart for that person who's fallen into sin. And God expects us to do something with that. Now, now finally, today, uh, we want to consider the erring brother. That's important in restoration to fellowship. But also what we do is that we restore the whole body to God's blessings. Now, we want that individual to be brought back to God's blessings, but we have this goal also of bringing the whole church under God's blessings once again. You see, the goal of church discipline is to have a pure church, and a pure church is a blessed church. The entire body of Christ is protected by discipline. Now, if we allow sin to go on, then there's a danger that others will fall into it. Now, let's look back at Galatians 6, verse 1. He says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. This means that the whole church is affected by unrepentant sin. What is it that Christ wants? Well, the metaphor, there are several metaphors that are used for the church, and I might mention to you that tonight we begin a series on the doctrine of the church. But there are several metaphors that are used, and one of those is the metaphor of a bride, that the church is called the bride of Christ. In Revelation 21, verse 2, there we find that the bride of Christ is identified with the New Jerusalem. Now, if you're not familiar with that, The New Jerusalem is the place that Jesus went to prepare for his people. That's the place where the church of the living God is going to live after we leave this world, in the New Jerusalem. Now, here in Revelation 21, verse 2, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Listen, prepared, prepared as a bride adorned. For her husband. Now, obviously, the bride here can't be the city. A city can't be a bride. So he's speaking about the people that will live in that city. And the ones who live there are the redeemed out of this special age that we're living in now that's called the church age. So we have the blessed privilege as members of the Lord's church to be a part of the Lord's bride. And this is a bride that's being prepared to live with Christ in this intimate relationship that we have in the New Jerusalem. Now, what is it then that Paul would say that we need to prepare ourselves with? What what kind of preparation does the bride have? Well, Paul points it out in Ephesians 5. 
He says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it. That means make it pure, make it holy, cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's the bride's preparation. And folks, this is when the whole church becomes bigger than just the single individual or just a few individuals. We don't want to put people out of the church, but we would rather do that than we would to risk the spiritual health of the entire church because someone will not repent. As one author said, the last thing that any church wants to do is to ostracize and remove a member due to unrepentant sin. Nothing is more painful for a congregation to walk through. And yet the greater concern for the whole church compels us to love the purity of the church more than even our own feelings. And it compels us to follow the instructions of Christ towards erring members and hope that repentance and restoration will take place. That's what discipline is. Discipline is a purging process. And so what we do is we either bring the person to repentance, to the place that they can be restored to fellowship because they have repented of their sins, or else we put the person out in order to preserve the purity of God's church. What do we prefer to do? Oh, we prefer to restore the person. We prefer to bring that person back into the fellowship and we purge the church by repentance rather than by exclusion. But I don't want to get ahead of myself because there are steps that need to be followed. There's a process that we need to talk about. One end of that process is joy for everybody that's involved. And the other end is painful at first, but it's also good for the entire body. Now, either way, Christ will be glorified by being obedient to him. If we follow his commands, he's glorified. He's glorified by the repentance of one. But should that not happen, then he is also glorified by the obedience of many when we put away the offender. But as I said, there's a biblical process to go through. Next week, I want to talk to you about the process. It's quite involved, and so I don't have time to go into it today. So church discipline, that's something that is commanded. We are God's little children, and we must be taught. And in the case of discipline, we teach not through just the words that we speak, not just me standing here and encouraging you to do what's right, but we also teach discipline through actions. And here we have the actions that the Lord Jesus says, these are the steps that you must follow in order to purify My church. Now, there's some great motives for doing this. When we discipline, if you happen to be a person that would be involved in that, then you are a person that gets what you need. You actually get what you need from church discipline. And that is that you would be drawn back to Christ and that Christ's blessings would be upon you again. You receive a guarantee of God's blessings because you're a person who lives in purity and holiness. And then we also give Christ what he wants. He desires a bride that's unspotted from the filth of the world, a chaste bride. And isn't it better to present Christ with a holy bride 
and to give him exactly what he wants than to give him something else. But do you know why churches don't practice discipline? I've given you some reasons already, but here's one. If you're not concerned about your personal holiness, then you're not going to be concerned about holiness in someone else, not unless you're just a super big hypocrite. You're not going to be concerned about holiness in others if you're not holy. And then when you're exposed to a church that's on a campaign to eliminate sin and do that by the personal holiness of the members, you're not going to be too anxious to get on board with any such program. Not if you don't care about it. So what do people do? Well, they find a church that tolerates sin. We happen to be a church that preaches against premarital sex, against adultery, marriage people dating others and going off in adultery. We preach against that. We don't believe in people living together without marriage. But there have been people that we've preached out of the church, and they said, well, we won't live like that. We, we think this is better. And you know what they did? They found a church that tolerates the lifestyle. They found a church that won't say anything at all about their sin. Now, I ask you, based on what you've heard, is that a church that loves people? Does a church love people that will not preach against sin and call people to holiness where they find the greatest blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ? We have a mandate upon us to call people to holiness. And you see, I'm not concerned about what people think about our church. I'm not concerned about whether people think that we're too harsh, that we're too hard. I only care about what Christ says. And you know why? Because he's the judge that I have to face. He's the judge that each of you will face. And someday we're going to stand before him and he's going to look at this body of Brian Baptist Church. And I think collectively he's going to say to us, what did you do to preserve the holiness of my church? And I hope to high heaven we have the right answer to that question. And that's what we intend to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. How difficult it is sometimes because as humans, we don't see everything as clearly as we should. We still have this human nature. We still have in us this terrible propensity for us to sin. And we know, Lord, that we don't always live out of the new nature that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And we encounter members every day that don't. And so we have to call people to holiness. Help us to understand first that we are to live lives of holiness, that we're not to go to people with sin in our lives and hypocritically complain about what they do, but rather, Lord, we have an honest, sincere desire through our own lives of holiness and the knowledge of the blessing that's come upon us to wish for that blessing to be upon that person as well. Or this is what you expect from your church We're not perfect people, but we are striving the best that we can to live the way that the Lord Jesus Christ lived and to show holiness like the Bible says, without holiness no man shall see God. Lord, we pray that you'd make that a part of our lives. Help us to have the care and concern for others that we would deal with issues of sin and we would eliminate sin to the very best of our ability from this church So your blessings would be on us all. Bless as we sing today. And Lord, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation 
of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.